KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, today, Thursday, is opening day for Major League Baseball, but we're thinking about the minor league players. They live with low wages and overcrowded housing in the hopes of someday making it into the big leagues. But now their lives are changing because they organized a union. Kelly Candale and Peter Dreyer will report. Also, Dahlia Lithwick will talk about some of the heroes of the Trump years, the women lawyers who fought him on the big issues, the Muslim ban, neo-Nazis in Charlottesville, and voting rights. Her book, Lady Justice, has been nominated for an LA Times Book Award. But first, 30,000 of the lowest paid workers in the LA public schools won a huge victory last week after a three-day strike that shut the schools for 420,000 students. They got a 30% pay increase. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. He's reported on the labor movement in LA for a long time, first for the LA Weekly and also for the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today in Washington, DC. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, we're talking here about public school custodians, food service workers, bus drivers, teachers, aides. A lot of them have been getting the minimum wage, which right now in Los Angeles is $15. They joined a union. They got a 30% pay increase. How did they do it, especially since school strikes are incredibly disruptive? Parents not only need to find childcare for those days, but the schools also provide meals for the kids. All LA public school students from kindergarten through 12th grade get free breakfast and free lunch at school. So the union and the workers could easily be accused of, you know, selfishly putting their own pay above the welfare and needs of poor students. How did the union counteract this argument? Well, these are workers whose average annual income is about $25,000. And there is a large population in Los Angeles, particularly parents of the kids in the public school system, 80% of whom, if not slightly more, uh, are Latino, uh, who really are kids of the LA working class. The LA working class, much of it subsists on the same level of income that these school employees uh, subsist on. And the common ailment throughout Los Angeles and Southern California, I mean, if you were asked 50 years ago, everyone would have said smog, 30 years ago, traffic. This year, unaffordable housing, which takes up half your income. And people understood that people could not survive on what the LA Unified School District was paying its non-teaching employees. So that was a big part of the fact that uh, there was a lot of public support for the union. That, that was key. And then the union also, you know, set up its own food distribution centers because they were acutely aware that this would uh, close down the uh, breakfast and lunch services that the schools provided for three days. So they, they tried directly to address that. And, you know, so this was a strike that really had, I think, significant public support, particularly among parents of the kids in, in L.A. schools. Yeah, the, um, the picket line at the elementary school in my neighborhood, in the middle class part of West L.A., 
50 or 60 people out in the rain, and a lot of them were parents with their kids on the picket line. It's very inspiring, frankly, to see. Yes, and when you're a kid on a picket line, that's a, a very good educational experience. <laughs> so, you know, I, might, I could argue that uh, education actually was uh, distinctly furthered during the strike. I want to talk about the tactic of a three-day strike. They struck last week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and then returned to work on Friday without a contract. Usually workers strike until they win something or until they give up. This time they went back to work without any resolution. Tell us about that tactic. Well, when your strike uh, actually compels hundreds of thousands of non-striking workers to make the kind of adjustments in childcare that, that this strike caused, uh, a more strategic way of striking could be, let's go for three days to show, uh, you know, we're united, we can close down the schools, the teachers are striking with us, but we understand the public inconvenience that this causes. And it compelled, clearly compelled the district to get more serious about bargaining. And it uh, also compelled uh, someone who I think didn't really need the compulsion, and that was Mayor Karen Bass. We'll get to uh, that in just a minute. Okay. <laughs> First, I want to go back to one thing that you said in passing. The teachers honored the picket line. That turned out to be a huge factor. Well, of course. I mean, that made clear uh, a, that uh, the workers had support beyond uh, their own union. It made clear that the schools were definitively closed. And it really signaled, I think, the support of the entire labor movement in Los Angeles. Uh, there are uh, a little under 30,000 of the bus drivers and cafeteria workers and teachers' aides in their union. There are a little over 30,000 teachers in LAUSD. And there are 800,000 union members in LA County, which is a big chunk of folks. And I think it, it signaled a, a greater level of support than the union could have attained if had it only gone out by itself. Another key element in the strategy is militant picket lines at schools everywhere in the city. This wasn't just like one factory's on strike with a picket line. Every neighborhood had picket lines of 50 or 60 or 70 people. Well, that's really the advantage of this strategy. If you lived in a company town back in days of yore and the steel mill closed, well, everyone could feel it because every, uh, you know, every adult male in that town probably worked for the steel mill. This is a, a, another model, but it, it brings the strike home. It, it shows that there is rank and file solidarity, and it's a way to get, as you mentioned, the people in your neighborhood and other neighborhoods to come out and show their support. So all of this conveys a very strong message to the school district uh, that it had better get serious about negotiating. Let's talk about the union. This is SEIU Local 99. What's its place in the larger history of the rise of Latino organized labor in LA? Well, this has long been one of the unions in LA uh, that's been key uh, to really the revival of unionism in LA, which up until the late 1980s was relatively moribund. And at the same time, the largest unions in LA, which had been unionized manufacturing facilities, aerospace, auto, etc. Most of those facilities had either closed up altogether or shrunk to the point that those unions had become uh, really barely populated. And so it was the rise of these unions, of the uh, restaurant, hotel workers unions, of the janitors unions, 
that really jump-started both uh, the, the sort of reunization dynamic in Los Angeles in the 1990s and provided the political foot soldiers for really turning Los Angeles, if I can use a color uh, metaphor, from a, a purple area to a blue area. And it's really, I would argue, really is key to the leftward movement of California over the last 30 years. You also mentioned that LA's may new mayor, Karen Bass, uh, joined in the negotiation. She, of course, started as a community organizer in South LA. Yeah, no, her background is clearly one that was uh, always been part of the Labor Progressive Alliance in Los Angeles. So it was kind of a natural for uh, uh, Mayor Bass, or Karen, as those of us who've known her for decades call <laughs> yes. her, uh, to intervene. And she did the usual thing of having the uh, school district officials in one room and the union officials in another room and shuttling back and forth uh, so that uh, the, the accord, which potentially could be reached, in fact, was reached. And it was Mayor Bass who announced the settlement with the head of the union and the head of the school district standing next to her uh, on, uh, on Friday. And of course, we remember that in 2019, there was a historic teacher strike in Los Angeles that was a magnificent success. And it was based on a massive community mobilization. The union spent over a year meeting with parents groups, meeting with students groups, talking to them about what they wanted in their schools. So when it came time for the strike, the students supported the teachers, the families supported the teachers, and that made it possible to have a really impressive victory. And everybody, I think, remembers the 2019 community mobilization that led to the teachers union success. Yes, this really began as a tactic or a strategy, I should say, in the 2012 teacher strike in Chicago, where uh, the main issue in many ways was opposing then Mayor Rahm Emanuel's closure of 50 inner city schools, which really upset parents and the community, to particularly on uh, the south side and the west side of Chicago, which are largely black and Latino areas. The union really made common cause with the parents. And this has become increasingly a strategy that this kind of union uh, will will take. Uh, the, the name for this, given to it by uh, some uh, labor historians at Georgetown here in Washington, D.C., is bargaining for the common good. And that's largely what you saw in the 2019 strike in Los Angeles. And in a way, it's partly replicated in the strike just uh, that was concluded last week in Los Angeles. Bargaining for the common good. Elsewhere in the news from California, Governor Gavin Newsom announced that the state has signed a $50 million contract with a nonprofit generic drug manufacturer to produce insulin that will be available to Californians at a cost of $30 per dose, which is what it costs to manufacture and distribute it. Private companies generally charge about 10 times that level. That's called big pharma. Why don't other states do what California is doing here? Why not the federal government? Well, that was what I was pondering in a, in a, a piece I wrote in uh, the American Prospect last week. And that was what has gone on in California is really kind of a, a, a new adaptation of something called the public option, which the Yale political scientist Jacob Hacker came up with and which made it into the Obama administration's 
uh, original legislation establishing the Affordable Care Act. There it was create a government-run insurance company where people would buy in to essentially what was Medicare, but it would cost less and be more comprehensive than the private uh, insurance deals, thereby compelling them uh, to reduce their prices or maybe even go out of business. Joe Lieberman of not-sainted memory uh, uh, refused to be the 60th vote uh, on that, and so it never it never was enacted. But what I think California, and uh, all credit here to Gavin Newsom, the governor, what California has done is created a public option in the manufacture and distribution of drugs. I calculated what it cost the state, which is it was a $100 million appropriation, which compared to the state's annual budget, which was about $240 billion, I calculated to be a little less than 120th of 1% of what the state was spending uh, this year. And, uh, you know, other states don't have $100 million probably to, to throw around like this, but uh, they also have considerably smaller populations than California. So I think if they look at this and it only costs them 120th or even just one-tenth of 1% of their <laughs> annual expenditures, it would be something worth doing. And so I you know, said, well, look at the dem big Democratic other states, New York, Illinois, with Democratic legislatures and Democratic governors, this might be something you should consider doing. And, you know, it's, I think, something that Joe Biden might, uh, he can't obviously with a Republican House, couldn't get it through now, but it might be a nice thing for him to add to the things he's going to run on in 2024. And it seems to me to make perfect sense as one of the next iterations of, uh, you know, Democratic capital D policy. One more thing. You just posted a piece arguing that March has been a bad month for democracy around the world. So let's talk about the bad news. Well, I think we've seen leaders of three uh, somewhat celebrated democracies go completely off the rails and trying to derail significant elements of their democracy. Obviously, Israel, where it took the mobilization of probably more than half the country spontaneously coming out to oppose the, the most recent iteration of Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu's drive to really crush the Supreme Court uh, in Israel, uh, coming out on, on, on Monday after he fired the defense minister who pointed out to him that, you know, a lot of the armed services were going AWOL if he did this. Uh, we have France where, uh, you know, along with the United States, one of the two cradles of 18th century democracy, just kicking off the idea. Uh, we have France kicking out the idea when the president, uh, uh, the president Emmanuel Macron uh, overrode essentially uh, uh, the assembly where he could not uh, get through a really significant part of the French social contract, which is the retirement age. He raised it unilaterally from 62 to 64. And you see very similar backlashes in both countries. I would point out that on Monday of this week, uh, no garbage was collected either in Paris or in Tel Aviv. Uh, because of the uh, strikes of uh, very important public uh, public employees. Finally, it's easy to overlook in this, but India, which periodically bills itself as the world's largest democracy, in India, the head of the opposition party was convicted of defaming Prime Minister Modi by in a stump speech in the last time there was an election there, noting that he had the same name as two convicted thieves, 
this got him a two-year jail sentence. I wonder if he said he had the same name as three convicted <laughs> thieves. He might have gotten a three-year uh, jail sentence. And the following day, Modi's uh, majority party, the Hindu Nationalist Party in the uh, nation's parliament, expelled Mr. Gandhi, uh, the head of the opposition party, you know, the day after he'd been convicted. Uh, none of these three of a phenomena in nations that uh, have been proud to proclaim their democracies really augured well for democracy and ironically are coming on the eve of the Biden administration's three-day summit for democracy, which has invited leaders from around the world to give their tributes of their nation's uh, commitment to democracy. And apparently, Bibi Netanyahu has pre-recorded his uh, leaving the administration to decide whether to air it or not. Uh, so it's a inadvertently uh, somewhat mistimed summit of democracy and only highlights the crisis that democracy is in, even in places that have been proudly proclaiming their democratic uh, bona fides for, uh, in some cases, for centuries. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Good to be here. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. This Thursday, March 30th, is baseball's opening day. Most of the baseball news at this point has been about the rule changes intended to speed up the game to attract younger fans. And of course, the news is always about the game's overpaid superstars. Mike Trout of the LA Angels has a $426 million contract. Juan Soto of the Padres just turned down a $440 million offer from Washington. But for a century, thousands of young players have lived with low wages, overcrowded housing, and all-night rides in uncomfortable buses in order to play in baseball's minor leagues, hoping eventually to make it to the majors. They never complained in public, but this year their lives are changing because they organized a union. For that story, we turn to Kelly Candale and Peter Dreyer. Kelly was a union organizer for 15 years. He's written for the LA Times, the New York Times, and The Nation. And he produced the documentary film, A League of Their Own, about his mother's years in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Kelly, welcome. Great to be here. And Peter Dreyer teaches politics at Occidental College. He's the author of several books, including Baseball Rebels, the Players, People, and Social Movements That Shook Up the Game and Changed America, published in 2022. Peter, welcome back. Thanks. Well, major league players for a long time have been represented by the Players Association and collective bargaining with the billionaires who own the baseball teams. But now the minor league players have a union and for the first time are negotiating a contract. Let's start with what life was like for the 5,000 minor league ballplayers who are employed by one of the 30 major league teams. What has it been like to be a minor league player? Well, the bottom line is they lived lives of desperation. They got paid less than the minimum wage. They didn't get paid for spring training. They didn't get paid for the offseason. They only got paid for the, the weeks of the summer, the spring and the summer, 
And even then, they they probably made no more than an average of about 15000 a year. They often lived in uh, overcrowded apartments with five or six players crowding into an apartment. And um, they didn't have enough money for food. A couple of them told us that uh, it wasn't unusual for them to have two meals a day, and one of those would be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> and then they could get traded uh, or move up and down uh, in different minor league teams all over the country. And then they lose their, their their rent deposit. And for someone making so little money, that was a big deal. And in fact, housing was probably the major issue that they were uh, upset about when the union started and when they were talking about organizing. You know, there's this glamour about being a professional athlete. But if you just graduated from high school or you just spent two or three years in college and then you go into the minor leagues, uh, you're in for a rude awakening. You're drafted by a team. That team essentially owns you for a certain period of time, five, six, seven years, according to the, the, the contract. So contrary to what most people can do is if they're not being treated well or, or paid right by one employer, they can go across the street, presumably, and, and offer their services to another. That's not the case in the, in the minor leagues or the major leagues. Well, everybody for decades has said minor league players could never be organized into a union. And that seemed to be true. But why did it seem to be true? Uh, Marvin Miller was the uh, key organizer of the Major League Baseball Players Union. He was a genius. And he defied the odds after he was hired in 1966. And he turned this uh, paper tiger of an organization, the Major League Baseball Players Association, into probably the strongest union in the country. But even Marvin Miller said, you know, about 10 years ago, the minor leaguers would never organize a union. He said they had stars in their eyes and that they would be too afraid to lose their place in the pecking order and risk not getting into the majors. So what did it take to change this situation? Well, like any social movement, it took three things. It took terrible conditions, which we've already discussed. It took the uh, owners to make a lot of mistakes, and the owners made a lot of mistakes. You know, people think that the ruling class is so smart, but in this case, they were pretty stupid. They made a lot of errors. One of them was they got Donald Trump to sign a bill in Congress that uh, basically exempted minor league teams and players from the federal minimum wage. Mm. That outraged the players, you know. And, and what was the name of this bill? I love the name of this bill. It's called the Save America's Pastime Act. <laughs> and the, the theory be was that. that minor league and major league teams would, couldn't afford to pay decent living wages to their minor leaguers. And if they did, they'd go under. Of course, 24 out of the 30 major league owners are billionaires. And major league baseball is making more money now than they've ever made. So the owners made a lot of mistakes. During the pandemic, They, the major league uh, commissioner, Rob Manfred, canceled the minor league season and left 5,000 people out of work and didn't provide them with any compensation. And then he added insult to injury by he basically cut off 42 teams, each with about 30 people in it, including a team in Burlington, Vermont, where Bernie Sanders uh, lives, which made him the, uh, the enemy of Major League Baseball. Uh, the third thing is that they had a couple of agitators and organizers who did a great job who uh, quietly went around talking to minor league players. One of them was a former minor league pitcher named Garrett Brocious, who uh, sued Major League Baseball for violating the minimum wage laws. Another was this incredible guy named Harry Marino, who had been a 
pitcher in um, Division Three baseball at Williams College. He was also a lawyer, and he he led the campaign for uh, the minor leagues. So all those ingredients came together, and for the first time, the major league players union decided it would be a good investment to help organize the minor leagues. Their contribution made a big difference. You know, I, I think just the, the the general feeling in the country at large towards unions was was also a, a really important factor. When we talked to the players that were in the minor leagues and part of this organizing drive, there wasn't any hesitancy about uh, the benefits of a union for these minor league players. And I, I think that is in part because they've seen other young people, you know, at Starbucks, at, at REI, at Amazon, step up and say, you know, we don't have to accept this. You know, the idea of a union is a good thing. It's good for the major leaguers. It's good for the minor leaguers. It's good for a Starbucks worker. It's good for us. But this is not like organizing, say, Amazon at Staten Island, where 6,000 people go to work at the same place at the same time every day. This is this is uh, 120 teams all over the country, many in small towns and cities. Uh, they're on the road half of the season. They're not working at all many months of the year. It seems like that would make organizing them a lot harder than organizing as we traditionally understand it in industrial sites. Yeah, it's not not like standing out in front of the the ballpark with leaflets. You know, <laughs> a lot of a lot of this was done online. It was done with new technologies through texting, through Zooms. I mean, you know, some of it was sort of old fashioned, finding leaders, finding the people who were courageous, connecting those up with, with uh, other people who who would be interested, giving those people assignments to track down other people. But a lot of it was uh, a new style. You know, same with the uh, Starbucks workers. If you ask them how they communicated with each other, it was on text. It was on Zoom uh, because they're they're across the country in thousands of different workplaces, too. So mm-hmm. I think they were very strategic about it. Uh, we, we quoted Trevor uh, Hildenberger, who was one of the, the main organizers, and he said, when I talked to other players, you know, at the batting cage or on the bus or in the locker room, I made sure that I didn't whisper. <laughs> I didn't want anybody to think that what we were doing was dangerous or wrong. So they were thoughtful, uh, psychologically thoughtful, organizationally, and and used these these new technologies as well. They also made a very smart move. They hired a, a, a Latino ball player, former minor league player, to reach out to the other Latino players, both American Latino and those from the Dominican Republic and Central America and Latin America, because they're now about a third of all the players professional baseball. We are used to the owners facing union organizing campaigns among among their workers of using every tool in the very large anti-union toolbook to prevent organizing and to fire organizers and, and then to refuse to recognize unions and force elections and then challenge elections. But last September, the owners recognized the union without a fight, without demanding an NLRB election, which the law entitles them to do. Why do you think they threw in the towel right away? So for one thing, they just the major league players had just gone through a lockout where the owners went on strike for 99 days and they had to cancel part of the spring training. And the public and the media really took the sides of the players against these greedy billionaire owners. And I think they weren't prepared for another big battle like that. 
They also knew that a lot of the major league players were on the side of the minor league union idea. Um, a lot of them wore wristbands at games saying they supported the minor league uh, players. And we interviewed uh, Clayton Kershaw and, um, and some other players, Walker Bueller and Gavin Lux in the clubhouse at Dodger Stadium. And they were very supportive of, uh, of the union. And I think that was representative of what was going on. So I think the owners thought that they were going to lose anyway because the players we're going to be able to get more than a, a best. They're going to get more than a majority to sign cards. And the truth is, it wasn't going to cost them that much money. And that's what's so outrageous about this is these are some of the richest people in the country, these owners, paying a decent wage and um, improving their living conditions was not going to break the bank. And whatever happened to that class action lawsuit that accused the uh, owners of, of violating a minimum wage laws? The lawsuit was filed in 2014, and it didn't get settled until 2022. Wow. But two things happened. One is because their biggest grievance was the housing problems that they faced. Every major league team agreed to pay for the minor leaguers' housing uh, as part of the settlement and as part of the effort to co-opt the union drive. Um, And secondly, uh, Gary Brocious, the lawyer, won a settlement of $185 million wow. to pay uh, current and former major league players for having been underpaid under federal minimum wage laws. And so, you know, the owners uh, knew that public opinion was against them. These are among the most ferocious anti-union people in the country in many ways. But, you know, they knew they'd lost and they were trying to cut their losses. Where do we stand in the contract negotiations right now? There was essentially a, a news blackout on on the negotiations with the, with the minor leagues for their first contract. But talking to people behind the scenes, we suspect that the key issues are going to be housing, as, as uh, Peter pointed out. I think one of the key demands is going to be to establish a foundation for pensions for minor league players. Uh, some of these guys spend four, five, six maybe even seven years in the minor leagues, still hoping to get their shot. So having a vested pension is, is I think, going to be a, a crucial issue. It's interesting how many players that we talk to talk to us about working conditions, the state of their locker rooms, you know, where they stay when they're on the road, what, you know, what kinds of hotels, all the places where if an owner wanted to diminish their, their costs would, would, would do it by getting a cheap hotel or cheap transportation or what have you. So all of those things are going to be uh, more uniform. Uh, Obviously, getting paid during spring training, all of the the times where teams ask a player to go to a training camp or spend two or three weeks somewhere where it might not be the season, but they're going there for training or or rehab or something. All of those those places, they're going to have to be paid which the the teams did not want to do in the past. Those were all places where owners uh, saved a lot of money on on, uh, not having to pay those minor league players. Uh, Most of the minor league teams are owned in part by the major league teams that are their parent company, so to speak. So while the minor league teams are responsible for the ballpark and other stuff like that, the major leagues really nickel and dime them. Still a lucrative thing to do to own a minor league team, but so it was really up to the major league teams to provide the funding for the kinds of for the pensions and the housing and the salaries that the minor league players get or don't get. So 
minor league baseball players for decades no one believed they could be organized into a union and suddenly they have been organized into a union what are the lessons here for uh, for the rest of america well one of the key lessons i think is that places that had previously been considered uh, immune to union organizing it can happen and happen fairly quickly but uh a lot of hard work needs to take place uh, to make that happen. I think there is a change in consciousness about unions. I mean, we've seen recent polls that indicate that the popularity of unions is at its highest point ever. It's 65, you know, approaching 70%. And and part of the reason for that is, is because of poor working conditions and what's happened in the economy. You know, that people are realizing that a union is going to be good for us, good for our future, good for our families. So, I think the the main lesson is is that when you have courageous people, when you have an institutional structure that is supportive, uh, big things can happen. Everything's impossible until it's not. Everything's impossible until it's not. Kelly Candale and Peter Dreyer wrote the cover story for The Nation, How Minor League Ballplayers Won a Union. It is a terrific piece of reporting. You can read it at thenation.com. Uh, You can read it on opening day, Thursday, March 30th. Thank you, Kelly. You're welcome. Great to be here. And thank you, Peter. Great, John. Good to see you again. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. It's time to talk again about the Trump years, but this time we want to talk not about the villains, but about some of the heroes, especially the women lawyers who fought him on the big issues. For that, we turn to Dahlia Lithwick. She's senior legal correspondent at Slate and host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning podcast about the law. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, Harper's, The New Yorker, and The Washington Post. Her new book is Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. It's already a bestseller. Dahlia Lithwick, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first things first. Before Trump, before RBG, before Hillary, there was Pauli Murray. You call her a hero who wasn't a hero. Why do you open your book on women lawyers in the Trump years with Polly Murray? It's a great question. It's a question I wanted you to ask. (laughs) And the, you know, the short answer is because I think Polly Murray is the constitutional hero we all should have been talking about and fetting and remembering and thinking about. And Polly Murray is almost uh, totally forgotten to history, constitutional legal history. I never learned anything about Polly Murray in law school. And so the book starts with a little bit of a meditation, not just on why it is that lawyer who believed that they were a man trapped in a woman's body that was black, descended from slaves on one side and slave owners on the other, Uh, that had every door closed possible, and yet somehow managed to write what became the kind of nut of the Brown v. Board 
petition before the Supreme Court that Thurgood Marshall won, wrote what became the paper that would become the cornerstone of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's work on using the 14th Amendment uh, to get gender equality. All of this happened because of Pauli Murray and more. And yet history has more or less erased Pauli Murray. And so one of the things I wanted to think about in the introduction to this book is both a culture that is so desperate for heroes, right? We wait and we say, Bob Mueller is going to save us. And then we say, Merrick Garland's going to save us. And then we say, you know, RBG is going to come back from the grave and save us. But these heroes are everywhere. And some of them get famous and some of them don't. And some of them get mugs and tote bags and t-shirts and some of them don't. But the important thing is not the waiting around for the hero, it's lifting up and helping the heroes that are all around us, whether they get famous or not. The beginning of the Trump years, we start with Sally Yates, the acting attorney general of the United States, remaining in office until Trump could get his own attorney general confirmed by the Senate. A week after his inauguration, she ended up being the first person in the government to say no to Trump and the first person to get fired for it. What did she say no to? Sally Yates was, as you said, the acting attorney general, a holdover from the Obama administration. It's very common to keep someone on uh, in these acting positions until you can confirm their replacement. Um, but Sally Yates is also an institutionalist, was not by any metric a, a wild bomb thrower in the Obama administration in the Justice Department. I think thought she'd just be cooling her heels for a couple of weeks and then got slapped with the travel ban, with the Muslim ban. It wasn't vetted by her office. She didn't know it was coming. Nobody sought her opinion. It was simply announced and she found out the way the rest of us did on her iPhone uh, in her car. And faced with the prospect of sending her DOJ lawyers out to defend it in courts, having workshopped it really meticulously with her staff, Sally Yates just said, no, I cannot defend this. I think it's rooted in anti-Muslim animus in violation of the First Amendment. I think it violates the due process clause and essentially just made the decision that she worked for the people and the Justice Department and not for Donald Trump. And as you noted, she was summarily uh, and unceremoniously fired. One of the reasons the story is so important to me is because, as you noted, she was one of the first people who said, I will not follow unlawful policies. I will not help enact them. But in a lot of important ways, she was also one of the last people. There were so few people in the Trump administration willing to courageously stand up and say, I will not do family separation. I will not rescind DACA. I will not go after you know, trans uh, uh, service members because that is unconstitutional and permissible. So a lot of people got fired. And a lot of people didn't get fired, just kept doing what they were doing. And a lot of people after wrote tell-all books and made a lot of money for it. To me, Sally Yates is a hero, not just because of what she did, but because she modeled a thing that too few people did in her wake. And the next chapter of Trump's Muslim travel ban was that amazing weekend at the airports when lawyers and thousands of demonstrators swarmed the airports, the lawyers providing emergency legal services to travelers arriving from Muslim countries who were subject to the executive order that Trump had issued. You say 
we can thank Becca Heller for that. I had never heard of Becca Heller. This is why I wrote the book, because some of the names in this book, everyone will go, oh, yeah, yeah, Sally Yates, I love her. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, Robbie Kaplan, I love her. But a lot of the people in this book maybe aren't household names, and Becca's one of them. She was one of the lawyers she had just really, she was extremely young, had founded IRAP, which is a refugee project. And she was anticipating the travel ban was mobilizing lawyers, volunteer lawyers around the country to prepare for the eventuality that in fact occurred, which is that a whole bunch of refugees were going to get on planes with lawful permission to enter the country. And when the plane took off, they were entitled to enter the United States by law. But when the plane landed, the travel ban had gone into effect. Some of them were stateless. Some some of them had sold everything they had in order to rejoin their partners or spouses or families in the U.S. And they landed and they were simply told at the border, I don't care where you go. Go back to where you came from. I don't care if it's dangerous for you to be there. I don't care if you didn't originate from there. Best of luck. And what she did, which is so inspiring, as you say, is just mobilize this army of like tax attorneys and real estate attorneys and family <laughs> law practitioners who just showed up at the airport on a memorable weekend and put their skin in the game. And a lot of them just sat there at, you know, the, the, the baggage carousels at airports, filing pro se petitions, doing the work of the law. And to me, it's not just that Becca was a visionary, that she saw a need and she jumped in. And by the way, a lot of told her of people told her to back down, but also that I think it goes to this seminal point in the book, which is that lawyers really can be heroes. And we always tell jokes about, you know, the best lawyers are at the bottom of the ocean. But in a constitutional <laughs> democracy, sometimes the best lawyers are the people who just show up and fight. And so for me, I love the vision of all these kind of dorky lawyers with their yellow pads showing up and being superheroes. And let's compare and uh, contrast Sally Yates and Becca Heller. Would you say they had different approaches to the law? <laughs> Wildly different. Um, Becca, I note in my introduction of her, is sort of notoriously been known to swear. She's pretty cynical about the institution of the law. She says at some point in her chapter, look, the law has been an instrument of oppression for uh, women and vulnerable people for almost all of history. I'm just using the master's tools to take apart the master's house. I think she's probably the very antithesis of the institutionalist that Sally Yates is. Sally Yates talks about the the law like a Frank Capra character, right? I mean, it's such a love affair and it's so clear that Sally Yates just genuinely believes in justice and the law. And I like the tension between the two of them. I like the idea that I don't know what these people would agree on, but I love the fact that they both kind of took up the skills that they had to push back on the travel ban. And another one of the most horrible moments of the Trump era was that night that neo-Nazis marched in Charlottesville chanting, the Jews will not replace us. You, you tell the story of how they were sued by Roberta Kaplan under the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Who's Roberta Kaplan and where did she get this wild idea? 
Roberta Kaplan might be uh, known to folks who are um, very, very tuned into Supreme Court oral advocacy because Robbie Kaplan fought and won the Edie Windsor case at the U.S. Supreme Court that was a dart right into the core of DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. And that decision in Edie Windsor's case really opened the door in Obergefell for the court to finally recognize marriage equality in every state. So Robbie could have just sat down and done nothing else, and we could call her uh, a hero of democracy. But Robbie's one of those kind of energizer bunny people who just can't stop looking around and saying, who can I sue today? Uh, So she also defends E. Jean Carroll in her lawsuit against Donald Trump. She represents Mary Trump uh, and a bunch of plaintiffs who were defrauded by some of the Trump businesses. And Robbie and uh, Karen Dunn from Paul Weiss essentially looked around after the Charlottesville um, violence of August 2017 and said to themselves, you know what, if the Jeff Sessions Justice Department was operating as it should, there would be a massive civil rights investigation into what was clearly an act of deliberate racial violence that was intending to cause and did cause death and bodily harm. Because as we can recall, Donald Trump said there were very good people on both sides and the Sessions Justice Department did nothing around the violence in Charlottesville. Robbie and Karen Dunn took it upon themselves, as you say, to dust off this KKK act that had been used uh, during Reconstruction and used a little bit in the 1960s. That's essentially just a civil action against those who conspire to commit violence based on race. And so they, everybody said this is nuts and the First Amendment and it was just speech and they just persisted. And they won. And one of the reasons I love this story is they got a $26 million judgment last November from a whole bunch of the organizers, Chris Cantwell, uh, Jason uh, Kessler, you know, a whole bunch of people who had engineered that uh, violence in Charlottesville. I should note that I was living in Charlottesville at the time, so this was very personal to me, too. But I also love this story, both because it's about big, fancy white shoe lawyers from fancy law firms. You don't all have to be Becca Heller. You don't all have to be Vanita Gupta. And it's also a story about a case that took four years from filing until it went to trial before a jury. And nevertheless, they persisted. So Roberta Kaplan won her case. But it seems to me that a lot of the other stories you tell, it's not so clear that they won. What do you make of the win and loss columns here? Well, I think I largely told stories of women who won. And then the book in the middle spreads out a little just from lawsuits, because one of the things I came to understand in the Trump years is that you can win many, many lawsuits and still lose ground. Bridget Amiri's chapter is about winning a massive and consequential lawsuit against the Trump administration for a policy they had put into place in which migrant teens at the border who were otherwise perfectly entitled to an abortion uh, were being denied, not let out of the shelter to end a pregnancy, and Bridget won. And you're quite right. That looks like a win until you get to Dobbs, right, where the Supreme Court essentially says now nobody in Texas can get an abortion. And so it's awfully hard to tot up some of these wins as enduring. But I do think that maybe, you know, I I would say 
the book in some sense turns to organizing. The last three chapters are about voting and voting rights and not just get out the vote, but bending the voting machinery toward justice, doing something about vote suppression, election denialism, gerrymandering. So I think to your larger point, it's absolutely true. You can win all this, the lawsuits and still lose ground. But I think that if you can use the instruments of democracy, including voting rights, including organizing, including things like Supreme Court structural reform, then you can, in fact, win the long game. It's not going to just be enough to win lawsuits. But I think if we can pick up things like electoral college reform, gerrymandering reform, thinking really, really hard about a malapportioned Senate or a Supreme Court uh, with no ethics rules. Each and every one of those things is fixable using the instruments of law as well. One of the other biggest legal events around women of the Trump years, of course, was the Me Too movement. And there is a personal story here about you and federal Appeals Court Judge Alex Kozinski. I remember him as a favorite debater at ACLU meetings in Los Angeles. He was so witty. He was so engaging. He was so clever. And it turned out he treated women abusively, horribly. And indeed, you were one of them, but you didn't complain about this at the time. Why do you think you didn't? To be clear, he did not treat me abusively and horribly. Uh, he did uh, things that were inappropriate when I was a law clerk. It was not uh, nearly to the level of the treatment that some of the women who later came forward uh, alleged against him. I mean, there were women to whom he showed pornography in chambers. There were women that he touched inappropriately. By the time women started coming forward in 2017, uh, there were a whole host, I think 14 women on the record who came forward using their names to say what had happened. But your baseline question is the right question, which is, it was an open secret on the Ninth Circuit about Judge Kaczynski that, uh, you know, porn was a big part of, of um, what he showed clerks and discussed with clerks, that there was a real tendency of young women law students to refuse to clerk for him. I encouraged young women law students not to clerk for him. So my question for purposes of your answer is why we kept secrets, why an open secret on a federal appeals court was suppressed for decades until a handful of young women were brave enough to come forward and say, this is not all right. And so that chapter is less about, you know, Me Too and Alex Kaczynski than it is about a culture particularly acute in the legal profession and in the judiciary of never doing anything about abuse, of having systems that do not work to investigate and punish abuse. But the larger question of how it is possible that I could have written in 2017 that this was an open secret and gotten dozens of emails from people saying, oh, a girl, I knew all about that. We all knew that. And yet most of us did nothing. That's the problem I wanted to grapple with. And how did the Alex Kaczynski story end? Well, it ended after, um, I think, the second wave of people came forward to the Washington Post and said, I am putting my name on the record. This happened to me. Uh, there was to be a judicial investigation of his conduct, and Judge Kaczynski stepped down. 
And as soon as he stepped down with a lifetime pension, by the way, the investigation ended. There was no further investigation. And so to this day, it's still an open question of what happened, how it happened, who knew. And that goes to a larger point, which is we have to have investigations. Me Too isn't enough. Hashtag Twitter Me Too isn't enough. A bunch of people coming forward making claims is not enough. But if we don't have real and meaningful investigations, not just of Alex Kaczynski, I would say the same thing of Brett Kavanaugh. If we don't have meaningful investigations that include the protections of due process and the right to be heard and everything that follows, then we don't have legal findings. What we have is just mobs. And I am opposed to mobs, regardless of who the accused is, because that's just not how we find out what happened. And maybe I would just add parenthetically that the legal profession, which was at issue in the Ninth Circuit context is a place that does daily, daily the work of investigating and adjudicating and making final findings on the merits. So the idea that the judiciary cannot do for itself what it does for the rest of society is just particularly galling and insane. You wrote most of this book before the repeal of Roe. Now we are in what you call a truly frightening moment. Would you have preferred that your book come out six months ago? Or is this a book for the post-Roe world of women in the law? Well, here I have to say I'm grateful to Jill Filipovic, who did a review in the Washington Post this week that helped crystallize for me why I think this book still works post-Roe. It's not just ancient history. That was the intention to sort of lift up these amazing women. But she says, and I think it's true, that the book is also a roadmap and a blueprint, although I am calling it a pink print because it's quite (laughs) pink. And I think it's a book that is about not just what we talked about at the beginning, which is understanding that women have real, excellent, useful tools to, uh, press into service in moments of of difficulty, and not just what we talked about in the middle, which is this gets done not by winning lawsuits, but by organizing. That's why the book ends with Stacey Abrams and these armies of Black and brown women who have done more uh, to change the way we vote than, than anyone. But more pointedly, that the law, which can be absolutely a source of power and immense, immense Uh, equality and dignity for women can turn on a dime to be used against them. And we've seen story after story this summer of young women who are, you know, rape and incest victims who are being denied abortion care, of people who are being denied emergency contraception, people who are being denied. Now we're hearing Idaho saying that students can't get contraception, teachers can't talk about abortion. That's the law being weaponized not to lift up and and equalize women, but to harm them. And quite literally, in some cases, and the reason I say we're in a frightening moment, is we see women in jail in Oklahoma for fetal endangerment, in jail in Alabama for fetal endangerment. And so I think the law is both the most powerful and useful instrument that we have to make ourselves equal and free, even now when it feels like the wheels have come off. But also, we have to be so careful and mindful of how readily the law can be bent and distorted to go after women and their rights and freedom. 
this doesn't stop at Dobbs. I think it goes now to contraception. I think it now goes to, you know, fetal personhood and all that that involves. And so I want the folks who read and think about these issues to open the aperture a little bit, not just that like no hero is coming to save us, the heroes are all around us, but more urgently that the law, which we have just taken for granted, is the reason that we have credit cards and that we don't get fired for pregnancies and all the stuff that happened in the 70s to RBG, that same law can very, very speedily be melted down and fashioned into instruments of harm. And then we have to think really, really carefully about that relationship of both owning, embracing the rule of law and being very afraid of having it used against us to our peril. Dahlia Lithwick, her new book is Lady Justice. Dahlia, thanks for this wonderful book. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Dahlia Lithwick's book, Lady Justice, has been nominated for an LA Times Book Award. The winners will be announced April 21st. We spoke with her in October 2022. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music